Father, we do ask now as we come to consider some important truths this morning, even taking a a broader look of the influence of what we sung about or read earlier, of those doctrines that come not from your word, not from your spirit, not from your servants, but from the one who has a dominion over this world that you have granted temporarily, namely the evil one, who is described as the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, the one who holds men captive to do his will, and no doubt has the bulk of his energy designed to confuse your truth and to destroy what you have created for good. And so as we look this morning, uh, begin to look this morning at how that applies to what it means to be human as male and female, what it means to be an image bearer through masculinity and femininity, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that we might be more holy and faithful and mature spiritually before you. And so to that end, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been out of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 for a while, and we're going to be heading back into it. But as we come back into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, uh, we're coming into some, some large topics. We're coming in to the issue of authority and submission, particularly as God designed that to be exercised through differentiated genders, and particularly as it's worked out in those most fundamental institutions of the family, marriage, and the church. So we're brought face to face with some, what have become anyway, in our culture and in our day and in our time, contentious issues, contentious issues, the design and role of God for men and women. And specifically, 1 Peter 3 brings us to the most contentious of them all, namely, that design of God for the role of women, which is submission within the home. Of course, the corollary to that is the authority of headship given to the husband. So it brings us then to the issue of that hated word, submission and authority. Those words are to many like nails on a chalkboard particularly that word submission. Even many within the church cannot conceive of the concepts of authority and submission as inherited to gender roles within marriage and the church without equally assigning to those ideas and concepts the idea of oppression and inferiority. The idea that gendered roles of authority and submission could be had among equal members of humanity and be designed by God for the joy of the individual, the good of society, and essential components for human flourishing are, for all intents and purposes, inconceivable, even offensive. And so we as the church ask, why is it this way? Why is it this way? Well, one is because of the misunderstanding and misapplication of those two concepts in our culture and indeed even within the church itself, and certainly because of the abuses that have been perpetuated throughout the history of humanity. 
But there is another reason, a little more specific, and that is this. Because of the incredible impact of feminism on our culture. The incredible impact of feminism. Feminism has wielded a massive influence on our culture and the self-perception of many women, even on our understanding of sexuality, marriage, family, children, the very idea of what it means to be female and male, and the idea and the concept of gender itself. Now, feminism isn't the only cause for those things. It's a confluence of many factors, but at the front of that line, at the front of that charge, is the issue of feminism. Now, as recently as 2013, one survey suggested that 70% of women actually reject that label, including pop culture icons and other names that you would assume uh, would have accepted it. However, since then, uh, it has changed quite a bit, and more and more are identifying, even championing, the causes and the identity of feminism. And it has brought massive challenges and changes to our culture, our nation, and even more importantly, to the church. And it is at the forefront of the issues that we face as citizens of a nation and citizens within this world, both politically, socially, culturally, and again, even in the church. So it is a massive issue. It is an incredibly important subject. And so before we get back into the actual text, the first Peter one through three, or three, one through seven, we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at this issue this, this morning of feminism and then next week of God's design for male and female within the home and within the church, and at the ways that feminism has specifically altered the church's own understanding of what it means to be male and female. Now, this morning, what I intend to do is take a broad look at the issue of feminism. And the goal is twofold, namely to show the history, character, and consequences of feminism that we are immersed in today. And the second goal is to cause us to discernment as a church and to affirm God's good design, His goodness in the design of male and female and the roles assigned to each within marriage and the church. Now, to accomplish that this morning, I will note simply what feminism is, what feminism has produced, and then what we must do. So what it is, what it's produced, and what we must do. And as I mentioned, this week we'll focus largely on it from a secular perspective. In, in other words, its, its origin and its influence on our culture. Next week, how that culture has infected the church, and then what God's good design is for male and female Let's begin this morning, however, with understanding what feminism is. What feminism is. Anytime you approach a topic or a subject, you must first define your terms. So how would we define feminism? How would we define feminism? Well, a typical broad definition of feminism focuses on the idea almost exclusively of equality. Webster's Dictionary, for example, describes feminism as this. The policy practice, or advocacy of political, economic, and social equality for women. Another dictionary defines it in this way, a little briefer. The advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. So a broad definition emphasizes the matter of equality in all areas of our lived life in this world, economically, politically, and socially. 
However, the actual trajectory and contemporary agenda of feminism loads that concept of equality with the idea of complete female liberation from all constraints of perceived or actual male authority, domination, oppression, or influence. In other words, the idea of equality is to remove any sense of distinction and to remove any vestiges of what they would define as patriarchy, a a male-run society and culture that has been the cause of the oppression of women throughout the history of the world. So a more comprehensive definition, it's a little longer, maybe just listen. This is my own attempt. Is that feminism is an ideology that variously promotes economic, political, and social equality of the sexes with a particular emphasis on female liberation from any perception of male oppression, male authority, male influence, or constraints imposed by patriarchy. So it really has not only the idea of equality, but inherent to that is the idea of liberation from oppression. And that is key to feminist teaching. Now the emphasis on equality that feminists have makes us face the context out of which it was birthed. Namely, a culture and a society and a history in which things were not equal for between male and female. It brings us face to face with the reality of a culture and societal norms that largely supported inequality among the genders and failed to appreciate the equal dignity and abilities of true femininity. Even in the founding of our country, uh, one famous statement comes from Abigail Adams, the wife of John Adams, who was a writer of the Declaration of the Independence, who before the, the Declaration was written, she wrote this to her husband. So Abigail Adams wrote this to her husband, John Adams. I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. In fact, he did not heed that advice and include a clear, specific mention of women in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. But the letter itself uh, makes us consider the fact that things haven't always been equal. And it is out of that equality that feminism originated. Let me note then the definition and then the history. So this is very broad. Obviously, you could get lost in this. I just want to give a very general overview of the history and then what is the ideology? What are the actual teaching? What are the actual tenets of feminism? First, the history. Acknowledged by even its own leaders, the history of feminism can commonly be divided. Often it's said three waves, but four really is the number now, beginning in 2012. So really the history of feminism is divided commonly into Four waves, four movements, each wave possessing its own unique characteristics and advancing the idea of feminist ideology. The first wave of feminism could be marked out between the 1830s and the 1920s, and it focused on common issues of inequality, namely the right to vote, equal pay for the same job, equal opportunities for education, and equality in property rights. But at the heart of the first wave of feminism was the idea of suffrage, which is namely the women's right to vote. Woman's right to vote. And in fact, there were many good and just causes championed by this initial movement, and it brought both good and just changes as well as harmful ones. 
The end of the first wave is marked then by the ratification of the 19th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution in 1920, allowing women the right to vote. That is essentially the, the end of that first wave. Not much happened after that in terms of the movement. However, this wave also produced such champions as Margaret Sanger, who championed the idea of birth control, established the American Birth Control League, which eventually developed into Planned Parenthood. There is a second wave from the 1960s to the 1990s, and it coincided with and was helped and fueled by the sexual revolution, which also gained strength and emerged out of the 1960s. And this second wave began to emphasize even more that any kind of traditional femininity was marked by an oppressive and harmful submission to male authority. It advocated for then a complete break of traditional femininity as it has been uh, defined in relation to the home, sexuality, and the workplace. This one major document out of this era was the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, who's fought for non-discrimination in hiring, maternity leave rights and employment, social security benefits, tax deductions for the home, child care expensive, daycare centers, equal and unsegregated education, equal job training opportunities, and the right to control reproductive lives. Those were all key tenets of the second wave of feminism. Within this era as well, lesbianism became a political statement Gender was championed as merely a social construct, and total sexual freedom, including access to abortion, were championed as well. Also, the home was characterized as a prison of patriarchy and demeaning to women. The push for this equality for without distinction in gender, however, particularly as we could focus that on the amendment of the ERA, or the document of the ERA, was an acknowledgement that there was an equal value in the home by those who felt diminished or themselves because of the, the championed causes of feminism at large in the women's liberation movement. And so the battle of the sexes came also to be a battle among the sex, in other words, of females. Again, the Equal Rights Amendment was a key legislation of the 1970s, and this is just for illustrative, illustrative purposes. This bill argued for the complete equality of all women as full citizens with the same responsibilities as men. It was largely supported both in Congress and, for the most part, in culture at large. And it looked sure to be ratified by all of the states. However, a woman who was not identified as a feminist and in fact recognized the latent intent of these kind of documents, a, name, a lady by the name of Phyllis Schlafly, opposed this document. Her chief recognition is this, that the true intent of the ERA was the abolishment of gender distinctions that would inevitably lead to women being conscripted for military service, remove the right to alimony, and decrease their priority in the care for children in the case of a divorce. In short, she said... It contained the principles that would lay a blueprint for a new society, for a new society. She went on to argue that women's libbers view the home as a prison and the wife as a mother and as a slave. The libbers don't understand that most women want to be a wife, mother, and homemaker and are happy in the role. And that argument that she championed ended up winning the day and keeping the ERA from being ratified by Congress and passed 
into law. In fact, again, this message resonated with many who did not choose to buy into the ideology of feminism and, in fact, felt diminished by their arguments. But it's not gone away. As a matter of fact, I saw in the news just this week that the ERA in the state of Virginia is being championed again. And yet at this time, the argument is primarily because, or those who are arguing for its ratification are essentially wanting to, by amendment to the U.S. Constitution, make permanent the right of a woman's, or a woman's right to abortion. A woman's right to abortion. That's really what's driving it. I'll mention that later. There is a third wave of feminism, and that's identified between the 1990s and the 2000s. This sought to draw attention to sexual harassment and was defined and galvanized in many ways by a girl, believe it or not, punk rock band by the name of Riot Girl, and then more on the scholarly level by a lady named Rebecca Walker, who coined the phrase, becoming the third wave. And it was in an article that she wrote in response to Anita's Hill testimony in the Senate confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas. In this document by Rebecca Walker, she is reacting to what she saw as a threat to femininity itself in the way that Anita Hill was treated in these confirmations hearings of Clarence Thomas. Some of you are old enough to remember those. She writes this, and I'm just pulling out a few key statements. She wrote, To me, the hearings were not about determining whether or not Clarence Thomas did in fact harass Anita Hill. They were about checking and redefining the extent of women's credibility and power. Thomas's confirmation, in Thomas's confirmation, the ultimate rally of support for the male paradigm of harassment sends a clear message to women. Shut up. Even if you speak, we will not listen. To be a feminist, in her words, is to integrate an ideology of equality and female empowerment into the very fiber of my life. It is the search for personal clarity in the midst of systemic destruction to join in sisterhood with women when often we are divided, to understand power structures within the intent, with the intent of challenging them. Let this dismissal of a woman's experience move you to anger. Turn that outrage into political power. That echoes Betty Friedman's famous statement, the personal is political. In other words, that personal rage, that personal, individual expression of rage against what is seen as the systemic silencing of women is to turn into political action, into a movement. Now, the goals of the third wave were broader and less defined, but included equality of gender and more universal and, a glo- and had a more universal and global sense of justice and even took up such causes as the environment, economics, racial equality, sexual equality, and other movements, other, other causes. Finally, the fourth wave. That was identified from 2012 to present. And it focuses on, in their words, calling for justice against assault and harassment, equal pay for equal work, and the freedom to make individual choices over our own bodies. And another common trait of the fourth wave of feminism is the use of social media and the internet. One even called the internet the birthplace of the fourth wave. Now, helpfully, it does address such issues as sexual harassment, sexual exploitation, and the plight of women in other countries, among other things. 
However, these causes are often championed without a corresponding sense of personal responsibility and often, we have seen them lately, used as political weapons rather than sincere attempts to address real issues. That's broadly the historical movement of feminism. What does it actually teach? What is the ideology of it? And from where did feminism emerge? One helpfully notes this. Feminism originated in the 18th century European Enlightenment amid the growth of a self-reliant middle class and amid the philosophies that celebrated dignity, equality, and liberty for all. So those were tenets of the 18th century or the the Enlightenment. And they sought then to apply those things not only to men at large but to women specifically. And out of this early moment, this, or this early moment of feminism, came two distinct schools that one author, a feminist author, identified as egalitarian and maternal. And I can't improve on the way she described it, so let me read her words. Egalitarian feminism was a progressive, individualistic, and radical. It regarded women as independent agents rather than wives and mothers and aimed to liberate them through appeals to universal rights. Many of today's self-described feminists are heirs to this tradition. Maternal feminism was traditionalist and family-centered. It embraced rather than rejected women's established roles as homemakers, caregivers, and providers of domestic tranquility. It promoted women's rights by redefining, strengthening, and expanding these familial roles. The maternal feminist argued that a practical, responsible, educated femininity could be a force for good beyond one family through charitable works and a more enlightened social policies. So egalitarian feminism said the very distinction of genders is oppressive, the very idea of the home is offensive, and these are things that must be abolished and must be submitted to the desires of each individual. Maternal feminism said, no, these distinctions are good, these distinctions are right, and they should be celebrated, not destroyed, and that they are necessary for a strong and a healthy society, the distinctions. Now, what's insightful to note about this is that maternal feminism actually had, in the early years, the greater influence in terms of actual numbers and support by women at large. However, because it does not fit into the rage and philosophy of the more radical egalitarian philosophy, it was eventually silenced by the militant attitude of take no prisoners. And this militant approach of radical feminism with its aggressiveness won much of the influence in popular culture, but not necessarily in the heart of women themselves. Because as forcefully, forcefully as it states its case, it cannot erase what is inherent to God's design. Now, this radical stream of feminism is also influenced by larger political and psychological theories, namely of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Marx identified people in terms of social classes, namely, two, the oppressed and the oppressor. Adopting that mindset and that political structure, they fit feminism into a portrayal of all women as an oppressed class whose mission is to break free from patriarchal oppression. That's the idea. All women are, as a class of people, oppressed. The goal of all women must be to break free from that oppression into self-liberation. Adopting the teaching of Freud, they justified the need for sexual freedom from the restraint of societal constraints, which hindered the true freedom in pursuit of personal pleasure. 
Now, obviously, a lot could be said, but what are the key points of it? What are the key points of ideology? Let me give you three. Three. Meant to kind of summarize it. One is this. Feminism teaches or adheres to this principle, that culture, religion, and history reflect male dominance and patriarchy. And this has resulted in the oppression of women, loss of dignity, and their devaluation. That is a key principle. Secondly, they hold that authority and equality or submission and human dignity are incompatible. They're incompatible fundamentally by definition. Within popular thinking, the implication of one necessarily cancels out the other. Submission, and understand this, submission is inherently viewed as weakness and a concept that cannot escape the charge of devaluing human life. Submission is seen as weakness and a concept that cannot escape the charge of devaluing a human life. As soon as you introduce the concept of submission and authority, you have automatically created a class of inferiority and superiority in which one will oppress the other. And so submission is anathema. Authority within this mindset is inherently viewed as the power to oppress and control another for selfish ends, period. Authority is inherently only a power that is used to control another who is weaker and to achieve its own selfish ends. So authority and submission within this mindset are, again, hated concepts. And they are incongruent, incompatible in the deepest possible sense with human dignity and flourishing. Thirdly, they hold that equality requires, then, the complete destruction of socially constructed gender roles and expectations in every form. That equality requires the complete destruction of socially constructed gender roles and expectations in every form. That is a key tenet, a key truth of those within the feminist movement, whether it's recognized by all or not. And when I say that, I simply mean by those who fall under its sway, not its leaders and its teachers. Uh, after relating the overwhelming and obvious research that displays a difference in gender and suppression suppressed by feminists, one feminist or feminine author notes this: that the, what truly frightens feminists is their worry that any differences between males and females discovered by biology, anthropology, or neurology will be cited as proof of women's inferiority to men. There is a fear that if there is any distinction, that women are going to come at the bottom of that distinction and therefore return to a system of oppression. They cannot conceive that one could champion the cause of equal rights and the dignity of women and the respect of women and the intelligence of women without buying into their system, which denigrates men, marriage, family, and children and seeks to obliterate any distinction. Now, and I'm just going to mention this. This is going to be more of what we'll talk about next week. There is much within certain strands of feminism, namely that come out of maternal feminism, that we would, as Christians, a biblically-minded Christian, agree with and, and agree with the, the pursuit of equality of those that still acknowledge the distinction and the goodness 
of genders. And yet, it is that very fact that, at least even to me personally in, in reading about this, that emphasized more than anything what the key issue actually is biblically for us as the church and God's people. Namely this, that even within the strand of that kind of feminism that rejoices in the distinctions of femininity, the actual course that each takes, each woman takes, is a matter of personal choice and is not itself inherent to the gender itself. So in other words, there is still at its core a rejection of a fundamental role within the marriage, within marriage and within church, a role that is consistent with the characteristics of gender itself of submission. So ultimately, again, what becomes the dividing line is the issue of submission. We would hold that women are equal in honor, glory, and value as one made in the image of God, equal and oftentimes surpassing in intelligence, spiritual reality, and wisdom, but that God has designed an inequality in role and function in terms of headship and submission. The error is to attach greater or less human value to these roles rather than equal value but different function or to obliterate the distinctions altogether. And of course, as you can imagine, within the church, discussions of gender and roles are ultimately discussions about the Trinity, the nature of Jesus Christ himself, the nature of the relationship of the Father and the Son to the Holy Spirit, in which there is a clear relationship of authority and submission. But once one acknowledges that, then it destroys the whole theory and the whole system. Now, what are the consequences of this? Well, there are many. Let me give you a few. One is, then, the devaluation of family and children. The devaluation of family and children. Under the influence of the radical feminism, the home and the rearing of children and care for a husband is seen as a great evil, again, imposed upon women because of a culture shaped by patriarchal dominance. You hear those words until you get sick of them. One leader of the feminist movement, I mentioned her name earlier, Betty Friedman, who's founder of the NOW, the National Organization for Women, in her key work, Feminist Mystique, demonized any sense of traditional female roles. One noted this, Betty Friedman called the suburban home a comfortable concentration camp where women suffer a slow death of mind and spirit. So if you love the home as a woman... You are in a concentration camp and you're slowly killing yourself by self-inflicted wounds. The key move of Friedman, one noted, was this, that she attacked a post-war culture that consigned women to the domestic sphere. But here's the key. She, attacked the, she did not merely attack the domestic sphere itself, but she had, or she did not merely attack the domestic sphere, but she attacked the domestic sphere itself and all the women who chose to live there. So she, the very idea of that to her was itself an evil. Children were no longer the delightful fruit of sexual expression within the bond of marriage to be nurtured within the environment of family, commitment, faithfulness, and love, prepared and trained up as the next generation. Instead, they became a burden, a loathsome consequence of sexual delight, a threat to true freedom, or at best a commodity for achieving the goals of a personal agenda. That's essentially what the family became to those. 
Interestingly, many of these leaders had some history of a troubled or traumatic experience within their own family lives. For many feminist leaders, it was a matter of power in the sense of complete independence, again, from any kind of restraint imposed upon females. It was about a personal expression of freedom. And for many, in one documentary on feminism, the aha moment came when they were made to choose between a career or motherhood or felt demeaned in some way regarding intellectual abilities or skills. That was kind of the turning point that moved them down this road of radical feminism. Feminist Jane Fonda referred to her discovery of it as her salvation. Her salvation. Her salvation from anything that would diminish her proving her self-worth through unhindered pursuit of a personal agenda. And this really says a lot about it as a whole. One noted this. Feminism is self-actualizing rather than self-giving. It is assertive of its independence and autonomy rather than service-oriented since service gives up self while feminism is all about reclaiming power over self. Feminism is strong rather than weak and self-sufficient rather than dependent. Well, I hope as you hear those words that you can see how opposite to the gospel of Jesus Christ that is, not only for women, but for men as well. As a result of this teaching, of this attitude, however, there was an emphasis on value no longer in the oppressive sphere of the home and raising children and of motherhood, but rather value became almost totally assigned to career, the accumulation of power, income, and the world of education. Now indeed, there has been much success in that, particularly in the world of education. It might interest you to know that now, since that has been opened up and more women encouraged, that most college degrees are actually by women. They hold the highest number by a slight percentage, I think one or two percentage points the last I saw, a slight advantage over men in terms of BAs, MAs, and PhDs. And so those are, of course, good things. However, even in that, you still see the distinction of gender in the careers that are chosen by those who achieve these degrees. One non-radical feminist author noted this, there are specifically feminine graces and virtues and a specifically female penchants for tenderness, care, and nurture. These realities are reflected not only in women's preference for part-time work, but also in their predominance in the caring professions. Now, just as a side note here, sometimes when we hear statistics of unequal pay, there's factors that are hidden from us. In other words, sometimes that's pay based on part-time work over full-time work, which is chosen Uh, And also by the careers chosen more often by women than by men. So that's also often a very misleading number. Even today, this author goes on to note, at a time when hardline egalitarian feminism is dominant in education, the media, and the women's movement, women continue to far outnumber men in fields like nursing, social work, pediatrics, veterinary medicine, and early childhood and education. Which are all good, good things. So positively, this has provided an environment that harnesses the intellect and contributions of women to a variety of areas of life and has provided financial independence for some that has proved helpful. Negatively, however, it has replaced the career outside of the home as the highest idea and mark of value, relegating the home and child rearing and even the care of a husband as beneath human dignity and a substandard existence. Another, let me move ahead. 
Another consequence. So one is a devaluation of the family and of the home. Another is sexual freedom. Sex without burden of marriage and children. Now, to be fair, within feminism, there were two distinct camps in this area. One known as sex-positive feminism. So this would be those who support feminine sexuality through, basically, it's being brandished. So that would be through pornography. They would be very positive about pornography as an expression of women's sexuality, having multiple partners, uh, failure to, of commitment, and so forth. And then there are those who were anti-pornography and, expo- and opposed the exploitation and the objectification of women. However, in the whole, it is the latter or the, uh, the first that won out, the sex positive. Now, one part of this, as I mentioned earlier, is due to the convergence of the women's liberation movement and the sexual revolution of the 60s, which sought to remove all traditional restraints of sexual expression and pleasure. Sexual pleasure was seen as a natural human function to be expressed in any way that was commensurate with an individual's desires, period. Period. That's a discussion on its own. But this coincided with the women's liberation movement who wanted power over their own bodies. The initial point of attack on sexual restraint and ultimately the institution of marriage is what do you think? Some of you might know. The introduction of birth control, the pill, was actually championed by a feminist leader. Why? Because the pill, while it has, as, well, the pill as contraception has useful benefits, both in uses medically and within marriage, the essential motivation for its production was so that women could have sex without the consequence of pregnancy. And to make a way universally available to all women to have sex without the consequence of pregnancy also then was a subtle or not so subtle attack on marriage as the institution where sex was deemed appropriate and designed for It was an attack on marriage. Why do you need marriage? People, the idea of waiting for marriage to have sex. Why? Because now you've removed the consequences. You've removed the social restraint or stigma. And now there is then the ability to embrace, as they would define it, sexual pleasure on your own terms. They saw pregnancy as itself almost as a great attack on femininity. This also brought gay liberation With the untethering of sex from marriage, the consequence of children, and a completely individual expression and pursuit of pleasure, feminism also created an environment for the open embrace of homosexuality as as a legitimate expression of human sexuality. And as I mentioned earlier, lesbianism became both a justified expression of sexuality as well as a political statement. One noted this, a significant percentage of radical feminists saw lesbianism as a political statement. One group called the Furies issued a manifesto explaining, in their own words, lesbianism is not a matter of sexual preference, but rather of one political choice which every woman must make if she is to become woman-identified and thereby end male supremacy. Do you get that? You're only truly female when you enter into a homosexual female relationship and totally erase the need for a man. Feminist Mary Daly notes, only lesbian radical feminists can rise above the normal experience of male patriarchy. Amazing. It also produced this, gender confusion. If you wonder where does transgenderism come from, why are we in this confused mess that we are in, it didn't pop out of nowhere. It has its roots 
root in the feminist agenda. Part of the radical feminist agenda was to obliterate any distinctions of gender between male and female. Within that agenda, and you'll hear this kind of language, to say that there is a binary distinction alone of anatomy that defines what gender is, is wrong. But rather, gender is merely a social construct. There's no real difference between men and women, only the shape that society gives it. In other words, gender is a fluid reality based on internal experience and self-perception of the individual. And this kind of confusion has reached all the way to the American Psychological Association that makes this statement. Sex is assigned at birth, or sex assigned at birth refers to one's biological status as either male or female and is associated primarily with physical attributes such as chromosomes, hormone prevalence, and external and integral anatomy. Gender refers to the socially constructed roles. Now, now understand, when you read these definitions, these are the definitions that govern and define political policy and argument, which eventually makes it into law, which affects the family, the home, and the church, and everyone. Gender is a socially, is, is, refers to the socially constructed roles, behaviors, activities, and attributes that a given society considers appropriate for boys and men or girls and women. These influence the ways that people act, interact, and feel about themselves. While aspects of bio- biological sex are similar across different cultures, aspects of gender may differ. I won't go through the whole quote, but one author acknowledges the absurdity of this and says in other areas of medical practice, those not touching on sexuality, an incongruence between one's subjective feelings and reality is treated as a mental disorder. Patients with anorexia nervosa believe themselves to be fat even when they are skeletal. Those suffering from body dysmorphic disorder falsely believe themselves to be ugly. Patients with body integrity identity disorder are convinced they are disabled though their bodies are normal and healthy. In none of these cases would sound medical practice include ratifying and reinforcing the patient's uh, face belief. For example, they wouldn't provide liposuction to an anorexic. That would be seen as malpractice. And yet we do that consistently in areas of gender. One of the saddest perversions of this sexual is the sexual reassignment procedures that take place on many prepubescent children, which is increasing. When in fact, 80 to 95% of children after they reach puberty no longer have an identification with the opposite gender of their biological sex. That should be illegal. And in fact, it should be noted as child abuse, but in fact, that's flipped around. It's child abuse. If you do not provide that for your child, you are hindering them. Added to this, attacks on gender are those of traditional masculinity and which has recently been, again, defined by the American Psychological Association, traditional masculinity, as stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression, which is on the whole harmful. They say in this document, traditional masculinity ideology has been shown to limit males' psychological development, constrain their behavior, result in gender role strain, gender role conflict, and negatively influence mental health and physical health. This actually is an argument already established Uh, in terms of federal recognition under the Obama administration, which has a website, notalone.gov, and provided links to organizations that promoted healthy masculinity. One was called Men Can Stop Rape. And among its stated goals, and this I'm quoting, 
was to promote an understanding of the ways in which traditional masculinity contributes to sexual assault and other forms of men's violence against women. So, to have masculine characteristics such as competitiveness, uh, less emotion, or any kind of sense de- demonstration of strength is in fact a mental illness that needs to be confronted. One comment again on this says, For 50 years, so-called feminists have demeaned and disparaged traditional masculine codes of behavior, such as chivalry. Try opening the door for a feminist. Get ready to get smacked. And now they are shocked to find large numbers who grab and grope and sometimes even rape. There were many aspects of traditional masculinity that ought to appeal to those who worry about brutish male behavior towards men. This I'm quoting. A gentleman considers it his duty to treat every woman with utmost respect. Rather than acknowledging the real differences between the sexes and upholding both feminine modesty and masculine honor, feminists were keen to encourage women to become more manlike. And we see many examples of this. Fourth consequence, and I'm going to go through this quickly, is abortion. Abortion. According to militant feminism, a woman cannot be said to have equal rights with men if they do not have authority over their own bodies and reproductive rights. Again, this is what they mean by equality. Don't be fooled by that word. What they mean then is if men can have sex and not be burdened with children, a woman is only equal if she can have sex as many times with whoever and how often she wants and not be burdened with children. Therefore, fundamental to femininity is the right to terminate a pregnancy in the womb. That's the argument. Although the overall number of abortions is decreasing, there are more than 800,000 abortions per year. One out of every four women, it's stated by the age of around 30, will have had an abortion. One out of every four women. With over 58% of that number being women between 20 and 29. One site broke those statistics down in this way. One abortion every 30 seconds, 120 per hour, 2,899 per day and over 57 million from 1973 to 2013. I think those are just within the United States. There is an increase also in the acceptability of brutal abortion practices with the, with the argument for the legalization across the board. It's not in every state, but the argument for the legalization of late-term abortions being many who are killed while fully formed babies with a high chance of survival outside of the womb. Matter of fact, it's not uncommon to hear babies who are born breathing and healthy that in a hospital would be sent to the ICU for the proper care and develop into healthy children that are murdered on the table. This is feminism, folks. This is feminism. There is an in- Abortion has become the central championed issue among feminists. One feminist stated that it is, listen, the only power we have. The only power we have. Now this, of course, wasn't a part of the original, the suffrage movement, but it is what has become identified with feminism now. Now in light of what we've been looking at in Genesis 3, this stands in direct contrast to the glory of woman and to her who was named Eve in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. It's through women that men 
Women, kings, prophets, counselors, nurturers, providers, comforters, inventors, artists, writers, educators, scientists, brothers, sisters, friends, even the Savior himself came into the world. It is one of the highest honors of femininity to be the bearers of children and the main influence on the character and the maturity of the next generation. Indeed, the attack of radical feminism on motherhood itself is an attack on their own bodies. There is often in their literature almost the sense of a hatred of being female while they claim to champion its causes. One popular feminist, Germaine Geer, wrote this. Menstruation, she wrote, was a horror and a bad joke. And women should not resent it as an inconvenience which causes tension. Should they not consider it an inconvenience which causes tension before and after and during unpleasantness? Staining, there is no rational ground to maintain that menstruation as we know it must be irreversible. It's a hatred of her own body. And there's more to state with that. The destruction of value, the devaluing of family, the, the open expression of sexual freedom with all of its sexual exploitation and objectification of women, sex trafficking, the increase in child sex crimes and so forth. The destruction of, and the destruction of what it means to be feminine and to know God's design for flourishing. The desire of many within feminism and those who embrace some of its basic tenets is to accentuate the strength, dignity, intelligence, capabilities, and wisdom of women. These are good and true realities that in the sense of broad culture, attitudes, and early laws were diminished and needed to be emphasized and honored. And those are good things. Those are good things. But here it is. The error of the ideology is that its emphasis on these qualities and the purpose of these qualities is towards self-interest and self-advancement rather than what is best for society. In fact, God honors the woman who is strong and intelligent and wise. It is by his own design At the end of the book of Proverbs and the godly wife who epitomized the very essence of the book. So epitomized the fear of the Lord, epitomized strength, epitomized diligence, epitomized intelligence, epitomized dignity and epitomized women. Of this woman, God himself has said, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The overall fruit of the feminist movement, however, is to increase divorce, abortion, sexualization of the youth, create a culture or promote a culture of pornography, the objectification of women, Sex detached from the concepts of relationship and commitment in marriage, family, children, love, confusion of gender, and attack on gender distinctions that rightly understood and pursued are essential to human flourishing. That's the product of it overall. And here is where our danger comes as the church. And we're going to wrap it up with this in one more statement. Here's where the danger comes for us as a church. It's in this. That the right causes of equality, both legal protections, opportunities, same pay for the same job, those type of things. The right causes of equality in confronting abuse become the front door to the ideology that fundamentally rejects true femininity as God 
designed. In other words, the subtle lie and deception is this, that you cannot champion the cause of true femininity with their dignity, intelligence, strength, wisdom, skills, and ability and the contributions made to society without embracing in some of its form the ideology of feminism. That's the, that's the hook. If you champion those things, then you have to buy on in some level. It's, it's as if only feminist ideology champions those things. We as the church need to champion those things. And it is a direct attack on biblical authority and ultimately on women. It is an attack on the family, on society, and on the gospel itself. But let me note one point. And this is going to take us into next week and look at it more specifically in the church and even its beginnings in Genesis chapter 3. But here's what we have to ask ourselves. And I know some of you already do, but some of you may not. And certainly it's been my experience that many who profess Christianity do not. Who are you going to believe? It's that simple. Is culture, contemporary academia, which doesn't even agree with itself, pop singers, movies, or whatever, or going to define your view of femininity or scripture itself? What is going to define reality for you? Here's the deeper issue, and this will take us into the table. Let me quote from one author. From a Christian standpoint, while removing injustice whenever possible is exceedingly important, in the ultimate analysis, humanity's main problem is sin affecting both genders, not merely men. Though it is granted that men as leaders will often abuse their power in sinful and abusive ways. What women like men need the most, therefore, is salvation in Christ, not liberation from all male leadership. True freedom comes only from living in accordance with God's will and paradoxically, submission to God and His design for men and women, which marks the soul path to true freedom. End quote. Yes, there are abuses. Yes, there are ways in which sin has infected the way that these Gender distinctions are worked out in human history and even among the church. But the lie of Satan is to reject those distinctions themselves and fail to see God's goodness in them. And even more, to make the cause the freedom from abuse rather than the freedom from sin. To make submission something devalued rather than that which was ultimately displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and designed by God as the means of human flourishing, of advancing the gospel, of affirming the gospel, and affirming the glory and the true dignity and strength of femininity. It's whether we're going to believe the lie of Satan or the truth of God's word, live by what appeals to the flesh, or what will produce true growth in Christ and human flourishing. It really comes down to whether we understand the gospel. And the submission that God designed in the role for femininity, the submission and authority, the difficulty of that ultimately comes down to the difficulty as well of submitting to the gospel of Christ himself. Who is Lord? Who is Lord? Who knows what's best? Who am I going to believe? Well, I know that wasn't as much in a passage. We're going to get there. But that was to set the scene of what makes the instruction of God in 1 Peter 3 so offensive and so hard to us. Wives, submit to your husbands, even to those who are disobedient to the word. 
With that, let's pray and prepare our hearts to come to the table instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll pray. The men will come forward, and then as Kathleen plays, uh, the men will hand out the elements. Father, this is the world when you say that you delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved, beloved Son. This is the domain of darkness from which we have been delivered. And the glory of living in light of the Lordship of Christ and in the kingdom of your Son expose that more and more to our hearts. And help us to understand your glory in the design of male and female. Not merely your glory, but your glory expressed and demonstrated in your goodness. Help us to embrace it. That we might live righteously, enjoy you forever, and model and demonstrate the reality of the gospel to a watching world. To this end I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.